0: Well, this morning, we are continuing in our series called Taking Your Place at the City Gate. This is part five. We've already uh, looked at the importance of godly biblical values in the gates ways of our society and uh, what it means to be salt and light in all the gates of our society. And then in Joel chapters one and two, we looked at God's call for a return to these godly biblical values. And then And as we continued in Joel chapter 2 and Acts chapter 2, we saw the need for an outpouring of the Spirit of God on His people for the spreading of the gospel. And then last week, we began to look at some of these city gates and uh, some of these specific city gates. And the idea is we need to know what God says about these gates if we're going to leave behind a blessing when we go to these gates, right? And we need to know how to leave light and shine light, right? Because if we bring darkness to the city gates, how will anybody see any better? So last week began to look at God's the first of God's invisible creations the family and today we're going to look at the next institution that God created its human government and remember as we get started there's this foundational passage in Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 to 17 that kind of informs our discussion of all of these invisible creations of God in this uh Uh, So let's look at it in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Just a reminder a little bit of what it says. It says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, And in him, all things hold together. And so we saw four things about all of these invisible creations of God. They're created by him. They're created for him. He is before all these things. That is, he predates them and he predates us. And it's in him that they all hold together. And that means that all of these invisible creations of God, the family, human government, uh, the church, education, labor, arts, and on and on and on, they all hold together together and function properly in Him. When His design and His purpose and intention is honored and followed, they're a blessing They're the blessing that God intended them to be. But when they move away from God's purposes and design, well, it results in a mess at the city gates, and we end up losing the blessing that God intended. So all these things are created by Him and for Him. He's before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Now, In our country, and in our state, and in our county, and in our city, we've been given a tremendous gift that many, many Christians I mean, throughout history have never experienced. We can be involved in what the government looks like. We can influence government. We can even be a part in shaping the government. And by the way, not just with your vote, by the way, but with your participation. I mean, anytime you want, you can call up your representatives and let them know what you think. How many of you like to let people know what you think? Well, there you go. All right, and so uh, you can run for school board if you want. You can run for city council if you want, or for mayor, or for town council, or state rep, or congressman, or senator. Hey, any one of you can even run for president if you want. Now, it's a little late this time around. All right, but, uh, but you can do that. You can influence the government. And if we're going to do that with our vote, or with our participation, or with our opinion, or with our resources, if we're going to influence these city gates, then we should have some idea about what God says the purposes for human government are. Why why did he um, invent it? Why did he create it? What are his ideas? And what things are not his ideas and purposes? And so to do that this morning, we're going to look at several scriptures. All right. Now, before we do, would you just bow with me in prayer over the word of God? Dear Heavenly Father, we pray, please give us ears to hear what you're saying to us. God, give us eyes to see what you're doing in our day. And God, give us a heart to understand and respond for. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, all right, as kind of a foundational thing as we get started here. You know, um, why even have a ser- uh, sermon like this? And, and part of the reason is because, well, the Bible talks about these things. The idea human government was God's idea. Now, God did not ever intend for the church to be the master of Of human government and God did not intend for the church to be the servant or the slave of human government but God intends for the church to be the conscience of government you see the difference there and so we're going to begin our journey of discovery this morning just before God institutes human government on the earth and in Genesis chapter 6 we come across this guy and his name is Noah how many of you have heard of Noah before all right and Noah it says is righteous and he's blameless And he's faithful to God. He walks faithfully before God. And the rest of the world was not like that. In verse 11, it describes what God sees on the earth. And it says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become. For all the people in the earth had corrupted their ways. So it's corrupt. It's full of violence. And everyone except Noah and his family had become this way. Now that's a lot of violence. I mean, it's so bad that God says to Noah in the next verse, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I mean, that's pretty bad. And many of you, you're familiar with the passage as it goes on, right? God told Noah to build an ark, and God saved Noah and his family in this ark as the floods came and destroyed all life along on the land. And afterwards, God brings them out and blesses them and tells them to be fruitful and increase in number again and fill the earth. And, and then in Genesis chapter 9, God makes a covenant with Noah and his family. And it's really, as you read it there, the covenant is not just with them, but with all of humanity, right down to our day. And there's something important I want you to see that God tells Noah as he's making this covenant. Verse 1, he says, you know, be fruitful and multiply again. And verse 3, he says, uh, to, he gives them uh, the animals along with all the green plants for food again. And then in verse 5, he says this, And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting." I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being, too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Now, why is God saying this right here? I mean, who is about to kill anybody? I mean, the only people there are Noah and his family. And honestly, if they've made it through all that time in the ark without killing each other, I mean, who's about to kill each other now, right? And uh, I know that maybe some families, some of your families, you know, maybe around Thanksgiving or Christmas, maybe somebody's in danger of being killed, right? But but not this family, right? So what's going on here? Well, remember why all of this happened in the first place. The whole earth was with violence people were abusing and maiming and killing and murdering uh, people and it wasn't just commonplace it says that the whole earth was filled with it and so here God's instituting something new it's it's a corrective measure against that God doesn't want to see that type of violence develop again so He puts something new in place a consequence for your actions if you kill someone you're gonna pay for it with your own life God says And Bible scholars have long seen in these verses the establishment of human government by God, the creation by God of human government. Before it was just everyone did whatever they felt was right, or they did whatever they thought that they could get away with. But now God says you will be answerable for your actions in this life. You'll be accountable by this thing called human government. Uh, And it's after this time we see archaeology and anthropology show us that cultures and governments begin to spring up, like in Mesopotamia and in Egypt and other places as well. All of these develop because of Noah and his family and this covenant that God makes with them when they come out of the ark. And and so there's several ideas that flow from these verses, all right? So let's look at them. The first is this. Anarchy is not a God idea. Anarchy, that that idea that rejects all what they call coercive forms of, of uh uh hierarchy right and calls for the abolition of the state or or of government um usually it points to some either real or perceived uh injustice that was done uh as justification for the idea right but anarchy is not god's idea you may have noticed maybe in our news media it seems like more people in our culture that have um been promoting anarchy but history shows us that it results in violence It results in more and more violence and is often a pretext for or never really leads to more and more coercive forms of government as they try to force people to do what their ideas are, right? Government was God's idea. So let's look a little further at what God's ideas for government are that we see in these verses. The first thing is this. Governments exist in God's eyes to protect the lives of people. That's the first and primary function of government in God's eyes. There needed to be something to protect people from violence against themselves. And so the first thing governments should do is protect the lives of people. And so this is where we get the idea that governments exist to serve and protect people. Not the other way around. People don't exist to serve government. Governments were created to protect people. Now, the immediate question is, well, well, how then is this thing called human government going to do that? How, how is it going to stop anyone from violating the rights of anyone else? Well, Paul developed that a little bit further in Romans chapter 13. Many of you are familiar with this passage of Scripture in Romans 13. It says, uh, verse 1, he says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. And he goes on to say that anyone who rebels against The authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. Now, Paul is not teaching here what we used to call the divine right of kings. Instead, he's referring back to what we're seeing in Genesis. He's referring to the idea that human government was God's idea, it was God's institution. So going on in verse 3, he says, For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the one in authority? Then do what is right and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Now, do you see it there? Do you see what God gives to human government to empower, to protect lives? He says, Rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. God gives the power of the sword to human government for the purpose of protecting the lives of its citizens. Both from external threats, and that's where we get the rationale for armed forces to protect from invading armies, and from internal threats. That is to protect against citizens turning on and mistreating and abusing each other. Right? He doesn't give that power to the family. We saw that was a disaster before the flood. Right? He doesn't give that power to the church either because what we end up with is, is an inquisition. But he gives it to the government. But what happens if the government then begins to forget God's design and purposes and begins to use the power of the sword in ways that God didn't intend? I mean, whether it's directed outwardly to to, to other peoples through conquest, or whether it's directed inwardly towards the abuse and harsh treatment of its own citizens. History is filled with horrendous examples of the misuse of the sword by governments, And so that brings us to the next idea in these verses. Not only has God created human government, and not only does God give human government the power of the sword to accomplish the protection of the lives of its citizens, but also, governments must honor the Imago Dei. Governments and those who serve in them must acknowledge the image of God on humanity. Look back at verse 6 of Genesis chapter 9 again. In these verses, God gives a reason that he's instituting this new idea. He repeats what he said in Genesis chapter 1. For in the image of God has God created mankind. And so when God created humanity, the first thing he says is that all people have value and worth because of the image of God. And now he creates human government and he repeats the same idea again. So in the formation of human government, God is reminding them that every person is created in the image of God. And every person has the Omago Day stamped on them. And therefore, every person has value. And so this is where our forefathers got the idea that all people are created equal and are endowed with certain unalienable rights that predate government. Rights like life and liberty in the pursuit of happiness. It's, it's why they wrote the Bill of Rights that enumerates what these rights are that predate governments. It's, it's where they got the idea that the reason governments are instituted among men is to secure these rights that gov- and that government derives their powers from the consent of the government. That wasn't all new with them. These ideas of their origin in the very creation of human government by God. God created government to protect people's basic human rights, because all people have value and their basic human rights, should be, must be honored. And then something else flows from this as well. It's the idea that governments and those who serve in government are answerable to God for how they serve. All through the scriptures, we see God reminding governments and rulers that they are not a law unto themselves. That they serve at his pleasure. That that he raises them up and brings them down. that, That he's watching and evaluating them. You know, there's this really illuminating passage about this in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Moses is talking to them about the time when they would have a king. And he speaks directly to this king. And he says first that he was to personally write out a copy of the law. And then it says that he was to keep this scroll with him at all times. That he was to read from it all the days of his life, and that he was to learn to revere the Lord and to follow carefully all the words of God. And God gave a reason for this in verse 20. It was so that he would not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. I mean, did you catch that? I mean, this is God himself telling ruling authorities to submit to him to educate themselves on his ideas and his thoughts and to remember that they are no better than any one of the citizens. Hey, do you think God has something to say to those who serve in government? I mean, the psalmist tells us that Dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over all the nations. The prophet Daniel warns that that God changes the times and season and he deposes kings and raises up others. In Egypt, God said to Pharaoh, I raise you up for this very purpose that I may display my power in you. And when he was abusing his people, God came and said, let my people go. And then in Babylon, when King Nebuchadnezzar raised himself up and he looked at what he thought he created, he said, Is not this the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty, God immediately humbled him and, and he became insane and ate grass like an ox for seven years until he finally humbled himself before God. Herod in Acts um, gave this speech that some people you know, were trying to butter him up and he gave this speech And it says that the people responded by crying out, These are the words of a God, not a man. And it looks like Herod agreed with them. Because it says immediately, Because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. The Apostle Paul warns all rulers that Jesus is exalted to the highest place and that God has given him a name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledges that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. He is King of Kings. And he is Lord of lords. And every ruler who ever lived is going to stand before God and give an account at the judgment just like everybody else. And what we're saying is this. Governments and those who serve in them should acknowledge that they answer to God. They should serve in the fear of God, knowing that they must give an account to him. And they should recognize God's purposes in government. That's why we make the president and the vice president and senators and congressmen and judges and soldiers and police officers take an oath before they begin their duties. It's to remind them that they are being given an important authority and a great trust and that they are answerable to God for how they serve. All right, so so far we've seen that human government's God's idea. God's purpose was to protect and secure the lives and rights of its citizens. God gives the power of the sword to the government to give it the power to secure these basic human rights. And God expects governments to honor the Omago Day and to remember that they will answer to Him. Now, I want you to notice what's not here. Okay? What you'll not find in the Bible concerning God's purposes uh, for human government. Right? The government is not your Savior. The government's not your provider. The government's not your healer. The government's not your truth giver. The government's not your hope giver. That's not where you get all of those things. Now, you'll find some people who'll try to take some of Jesus' teachings on compassion or greed to justify one form of government over another, or even to promote the radical replacement of the form that we have now. You can find that out there. And you can find an increasing number of people promoting the idea that if we just get the system right uh, of government or economics, that we can somehow usher in some kind of utopia in which all of society's problems and ills will be fixed. I've even seen some people who should know better posting on their social medias, you know, that if Jesus were alive today, he'd be a member of this party or that party. If Jesus were alive today, he'd be a member of the Green Party. Or the Marxist party, or the Communist party, or this party, or that party, right? Can we talk for just a minute? I mean, can I just tell you something? As someone who has studied Scripture now for several decades, studied the New Testament and the Gospels for several decades, if Jesus were alive today, he would not be a member of any political party. Jesus doesn't serve our political interests. What does the Scripture say? We bow our knees to him. He's King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He's sovereign over all nations. Even when he came the first time, Jesus didn't join any of the the groups at the time. He didn't join the Pharisees. He didn't join the Sadducees. He didn't join the zealots who were trying to overthrow the Romans or or the Essenes because his purpose was not to reform the government, but to seek and to save that which was lost. So it's a mistake to interpret Jesus' teachings as advocate. You see, for, some, for revolutions or for governmental forms, Jesus was speaking about personal actions and our personal responsibility before him. And then secondly, the problem with this is that the problem of greed, it's not a systemic problem. It's a heart issue. Let me say that again. The problem of greed is not a systemic problem. It's a heart issue. Now, it is a problem, but it's a heart issue. And what I mean by that is that there is no system of government or economics that can fix greed. Right? It's not like, you know, there's the, 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 some system. If we just get this one system, then that'll take care of all the greed. Greed will express itself and has expressed itself no matter what system you have. The only thing that fixes greed in the human heart is the transforming power of the gospel, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what happens when those who wield believers of power in government forget God? And what happens when government begins to take on roles that God has assigned to either to the family or to the church? Or worse yet, what happens when government becomes hostile to God? And what happens when a culture forgets God or becomes hostile to God and it's biblical principles or ideas? Well, you know what? We don't really have to speculate on that. We, have, we now have 6,000 years of human History to learn from when a culture turns away from God when it stops looking to God to be Savior and Provider and healer and hope giver and truth giver it generally turns to the government to be all those things for us It turns to the government and says be our Savior be our king be our Lord be our provider be our healer teach us truth give us hope and when that happens usually a strong man or a strong group rises up and promises to be and accomplish all of those things if you'll just put us in power, we'll, we'll save you. We'll provide for you. We'll arbitrate truth for you. We'll, we'll give you hope. We'll usher in utopia. We'll solve all your problems. But it never seems to turn out that way, does it? Instead of providing the promised utopia, history shows us that we tend to end up with more and more poverty and more and more misery and subjugation and death and hopelessness. And instead of a savior, we end up with a Stalin or a Hitler or a Castro. we end up with an increasingly intrusive bureaucratic state that slowly takes away freedoms and liberties with each new attempt to be our savior and so here's what history shows us happens when people and culture turn away from god and turn to government to be its savior there's this progression that's often followed and it looks like this first they kill god then they kill the image of god on humanity then they kill humanity you know, it's estimated that the Nazis killed uh, between 12 and 20 million people. In the last 100 years, godless Marxist communist governments have killed between 100 and 120 million people. That's three to four times all of those who've died in all the wars combined during that time. When a culture turns away from God and asks government to be their savior, the Omago Day is often erased, and we end up not with a savior... But with a master. First they kill God, then the image of God on humanity, and then humanity. And if you think that hasn't happened in our cultures and in the Western world, can I remind you of tens of millions of babies who've been killed in most of our lifetimes. And now you even have public officials beginning to talk about the validity of whether children who are born alive should be allowed to remain alive. We have public officials talking like that. How long can it be till we have people talking about whether other undesirable people should remain alive or not? And you know what? It's not only history that teaches us this. You can see it in the Bible as well. Let me show it to you in two places, alright? How many of you remember the story of the famine in Egypt and Joseph? Joseph? Right? Joseph was sold as a slave in Egypt. He ended up uh, first in Potiphar's house, then he was falsely accused, and he ended up in prison. But then God gave Pharaoh these disturbing dreams that Joseph correctly interpreted to mean that there would be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And so Pharaoh made Joseph the prime minister of Egypt, and he was second in charge of the whole land and put in charge of this plan to deal with the coming crisis that they were about to face. And so a plan is put in place. And so they took 20%, of all the food that was produced during these years of plenty by taxation, and they stored it up in preparation for the years of famine. Now, that sounds great, right? That sounds smart, and it probably was smart and forward-thinking. But it says when the years of famine began, and the people began to cry out to Pharaoh to save them, it says, Genesis chapter 41, verse 56, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians. Now, wait, wait. He sold the grain to them? I mean, they took the grain from them and then sold it back to them? Well, that's what it says. The government took the grain that free people had produced, and in a crisis, they sold it back to them. And it really doesn't say anywhere that God told them to do it that way. It's just the natural response of a government that had forgotten that it existed to protect people. The natural response of a government that did not have an appreciation for the Imago Day. And it goes on to say this, that they collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain that they were buying. And it was brought into Pharaoh's palace. Now, then they ran out of food again after they had run out of money. And so they were told, uh, then bring your livestock. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock. And so the people were saved again. But then the next year, they had nothing else left. And so they came back to the government and said, well, why should we perish before your eyes? We and our land as well. Buy us and our land. In exchange for food. And we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. And it says the Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields. The land became Pharaoh's and Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. When you look to the government to be your savior and provider, all it takes is the right crisis for the government to also become your master. Okay, then there's one more passage I want you to see. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Here, Israel has been in the promised land now for about 400 years. They have governments, but they're fairly simple in form and structure. Each city has a town, and town are governed by elders who meet at the city gates and, uh, to decide questions of law and justice and so forth. And so there's no king or powerful national government at this time. And, and they've experienced a fair amount of freedom and liberty. And as a result, they've also experienced something else that God told them they would experience in the law. When they served and honored God, they experienced blessing and freedom and favor from God. But when they forsook God and worshiped idols, His protection was lifted. And then foreign powers came in and oppressed them and subjugated them and would take their crops and just make things miserable for everybody. And then eventually they would cry out to God. God would hear them and send a a deliverer, a judge, someone like Gideon or Samson, who would deliver them, and God's blessing would return because of their repentance. And um, eventually they would fall away again in the next generation, and the whole pattern would then repeat itself. And this went on generation after generation for 400 years or so. And then the last and greatest of these judges was the prophet Samuel. He probably brought more blessing to Israel than all the other judges. So let's pick up the story, 1 Samuel chapter 8. And it begins this way. It says, When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Okay, so they've got a corruption problem here. It's not the first time, right? It's not the last time there's been a corruption problem in government. Samuel's sons don't possess the integrity that Samuel had. They were abusing their positions. And it was a problem. It created discontent. And so it says here in verse 4, All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons did not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as the other nations have. Now, okay, wait a minute. I mean, their problem was corrupt officials. And so the obvious solution to that problem is to remove those officials and replace them with officials who have integrity. But instead, they go much further than that. They're asking for an entirely new system here. They're willingly laying down a system in which they enjoyed freedom and liberty in favor of a system they already, that already had a history by that time of abusing People and ignoring God's purpose and ignoring the Imago day on people. Why would they willingly do that? Well, there's something else going on here. There's another dynamic at play. Let's see it. Verses 6 to 8. It says, But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So we prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected Me as their king. As they've done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. The people are rejecting God. As their king, that's what was going on. After 400 years of back and forth, serving God and then serving idols, and then crying out to God, and uh, after being enslaved and all that misery, they cry out to God, and God will bring liberation. And then they'd fall again. After 400 years of that cycle, it looks like they finally decided. You know, their problems aren't spiritual. They don't need to return to God. They don't. They don't need God as their king. What they need is a new system. They don't need to return to God. And if they just have the right system, all their problems will be solved. And you can see this reflected in verses 19 and 20. After Samuel warns them, it says the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Going on in verse 9, God says to Samuel, warn them solemnly, And let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. And so in verse 11, Samuel tells the people, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. And they will run in front of his chariots. Some of them he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest. And still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. He went on to say, when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. You yourselves will become his slaves. God's saying to them that everything that they were tired of dealing with, that was coming from without the tyranny of foreign powers, the loss of their crops to foreign invaders, the loss of life, the loss of freedom to foreign invaders. Now God is saying, if you pursue this route, if you reject me, and begin to look to government as your savior and provider and everything else for you, then all of that stuff that you were afraid of losing to externally, now you're going to lose all of that internally. You're going to experience all those things that you dreaded. Only now there'll be no hope for a deliverer or renewed freedom because the tyranny is no longer coming from without. It's coming from within. They traded their liberty for the hope of safety and lost them both. They traded their great God and Savior for an earthly Savior and ended up only with an earthly master. And the reason for it is in verse 7. God says, they have rejected me as their king. When a culture rejects God as king and provider and truth giver and hope giver, it invariably looks the government to be all those things. And then as with the Egyptians and as with these ancient Israelites, when the government becomes savior and provider and healer and truth giver and hope giver, it also eventually becomes master. And so as we conclude this morning, I mean, it seems to me like we're on and in the midst of at least a 60-year slide, maybe longer, in our culture, away from trust in God, away from honoring God and from biblical value. And there are many in our city gates who've tried to kill God or His Word. And many have tried to erase the image of God from the faces of people in our culture. And at the same time, we've seen an increase in the desires of many to step in and be everything that God was for us, to be our Savior and provider and truth giver and hope giver. You know, and I feel, I must say, I feel a little bit like Samuel in our story. Warn the culture what it's going to be like when they get their way. Warn them what it's going to be like when the rejection of God as their king is complete and they seek another king to save them. And so as Christian believers, when when we approach this city gate called human government, we must promote godliness and promote the purposes for which God created it. We need a return to God in our culture. Can someone say amen to that? And so as for me, and I hope for you as well. Jesus is my king. Jesus is my savior. Jesus is my lord. Jesus is my provider. Jesus is my healer. And Jesus is my master. And you know what? I'd like to close this morning. Will you all stand with me? And I just kind of want to sing the chorus of that song. How, uh, uh, how great thou art as a declaration right here this morning, God, that whatever challenges we're facing, whatever problems we have in our society, that we are looking to you, God. That our hope, that our, that our faith, that our trust is in you, God. Because you are a great God. Amen. Would you bow with me in prayer as we close this service? Oh, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, God. God, thank you for everything you do in our lives, God. God, we are asking that you would pour out your spirit once again. God, we ask, God, for mercy for our country and for our culture. God, we confess that in many ways, God, we have turned from you. God, we pray that you would forgive our sin. Turn our hearts back to you, God. Teach us as a people how to love and trust you again. God, and let your favor return to us. God, help us. God, help us, we pray, as believers, to be light and salt in our culture. God, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone that loves him, said amen. 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 God bless you. Have an awesome week uh, representing God in the city gates. May his grace be upon you. Amen. Praise God.